Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's good to be with you all this morning. It's so good to have our third graders with us. You guys did a great job. I'm very proud of you. In fact, we're going to give you another round of applause. Let's do it. Thank you, third graders. Good job. You know, I'm going to come over there and ask you guys a few questions. So how, how's the year going so far? You're going, it's going so far? I'm kind of tired. I'm going to sit down. It's a little bit here. It's been a long week for me. I got a couple questions for you. You know how many, how many months we are away from summer vacation? Yeah, eight weeks, minus one for Easter breaks. So that's seven, right? So we are close. Yes, Miss Neven's cheering right there as well. Uh, I got it. I got it. So have you guys been on any field trips this year? Yeah? Where'd you go? Where'd you go? Oh, wait. Give me one right here. Heritage House? Oh, the Kellogg House. Oh, that's a good one. Any other ones? That's it? Science Center? Are you going any more, any place, any else? Oh, you did at the beginning, the Kellogg House? Okay, that's a cool one. We got to get this squared away. Okay, how many field trips was it? All right. Two field trips, science and Kellogg House. Awesome. I love those. Guess what, though? I went on a field trip this past week with, guess who? The fifth graders. Yeah, the fifth graders. I went on that trip. It was this overnight trip to Riley's Farm. Have you ever been there? Okay, it's up in Oakland. They got the Apple stuff up there and everything. We learned a lot about our nation's history, and we learned especially about the Revolutionary War, and it was pretty awesome, and I'm pretty tired. I was very tired. I slept on this cot that was like not a cot, and so I had a good one hour of sleep that night, and uh, I got home on Friday night. Guess what time I went to bed? 7.30 p.m., yeah. I'm serious, and I woke up at 5 o'clock the next day. I mean, it was crazy. I'm still recovering, so you have to bear with me on this message here, but anyway, we, uh, we went with the fifth graders. We had a blast. You get to go on a hike. It's two years away, so keep it, you know, out in the horizon there. You get to go and hike around. You get to learn about the 1700s. You get to learn about the Revolutionary War. You learn how to carry a musket and all this cool stuff. But one of these things we learned about was something called the Magna Carta. Have you heard about the Magna Carta before? No. Can you say it? Magna Carta. Magna Carta. Okay, Magna Carta. And Mr. Mercier, or Mercier, is he here? Mr. Mercier, are you out there somewhere? There he is. He's back in the back. Mr. Mercier and this other kid named Lucas, they won like these five-pound pies. There's, these things are like 50 bucks normally, right? They won it because they knew all these sort of things about the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta was written back in England in like the 1200s. That's like 800 years ago. And guess what it talks about? It talks about basically the people of England having certain rights and liberties, Okay. Because the leaders at the time, they were kind of being mean to the people. And so this Magna Carta, this letter, this charter, talks about giving them rights, all right? So I'm going to talk to your parents a little bit more about that because I can see you're already tuning out a little bit, okay? But if you have any more questions about the Magna Carta, see Mr. Mercier, right? There he is. And he will, he will let you know about it all afterwards. But anyway, we also learned on the fifth grade trip to Riley's Farm that in our nation's history, our forefathers had quoted the Magna Carta many times because of this sort of freedom, these liberties, you know, they, and they quoted it because England, Britain, uh, were oppressing the people, the colonists living in America. You guys remember all this from history, right? I remembered everything. I didn't learn anything new this past week at all. And... Uh, <clears throat> Anyway, so third graders, basically, England was being mean to the colonists, and they weren't letting the, they were making them pay all these taxes and do all these things, and they weren't looking out for their best interests, and the people here in America, the colonists, they didn't really have any say in the laws that were being made over across the pond, 
over there in England. And so you may have learned it. I don't know if the third graders have learned it already, but there was a saying that would go, no taxation without, do you know that? With an R? Yes, and it's got a P in there. Yes. What, no taxation without representation. representation. There we go. And that was just one of 27 different things the founders of our country were upset about with those guys across the pond. And so whether you go back to 1200s or the 1700s, throughout our history and throughout the history of humanity, there is often this struggle, right? This struggle between the people and the leaders that are over the people, especially when those leaders over the people, most noticeably, is when those leaders are corrupt, right? And they don't have in mind the best interests of the people that they lead. Well, guess what? Back in Jesus' day, that very same thing was happening. And we've kind of already seen it as we've been looking at the life of Jesus over the past three months. We've been since Christmas, and we've noticed the religious leadership and even the government leadership, which were kind of combined together more than they are in our culture right now. They were increasingly upset at Jesus because, you see, Jesus was all about the people in all the right sort of way. You see, 2,000 years ago, the, leader of God, the leaders of God's people, the leaders of Israel, they were becoming corrupt. They were becoming corrupt by notions of power and elitism. They were distorting God's view. They were distorting God's ways. They were distorting God's ways for God's people, the people that they were called to shepherd and guide. They were not shepherding and guiding them the way God wanted them. And we saw Jesus radically oppose them. Last week, we saw him oppose the parable of the prodigal son, or better yet, the parable of the loving father. And if you remember these words from Luke 15, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners, which I just love that they were the ones gathering around to hear Jesus is what we're doing. It's why we're here today. We're not here. We're here to hear the third graders, yes, and the worship team, and maybe I'm going to preach a little bit. We're really here to hear the words of Jesus. The sinners and tax collectors gathered around to hear Jesus. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the leaders, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And we saw last week that Jesus was restoring dignity and worth to all of humanity. And he was seeking to liberate the people from the tyranny of the religious elite. This week we see a similar struggle. It's in Luke chapter 20. In the first part of Luke chapter 20, we see these, these chief priests and these teachers of the law. They are questioning the authority of Jesus as he's teaching all the people in the temple courts. And they question his authority. What, by what authority are you doing these things, teaching these things? And Jesus sort of evades the question by bringing up a question about John the Baptist. Now, John was a man of the people as well. And so the leaders, they kind of evade Jesus' question because the people were persuaded that John was a prophet. And if they were to say anything against John, the people would be upset. And so Jesus, he didn't directly answer their question about this authority that he had, but he answers it in this parable in a powerful way. So Luke chapter 20, verse 9, he says this. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he rented it, well, he went on, well, this first story, he went on to tell the people, okay? So it starts with the people. He went on to tell the people that a man planted a vineyard, and he rented it to some farmers, and he went away for a long time. Now, the man that planted the vineyard, he's the one that started it. He's the one that created it. He got it going. Then he rented it out to these farmers to tend it to live off of it. In verse 10, it says, a harvest time, he sent a servant 
to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. That was normal. The landowner would rent out the land and he would get a share of the harvest and they would usually get 40% of it back. But it says the tenants beat the servant and sent him away empty-handed. The tenant farmers were disrespecting the landowner, their boss, okay? The landowner is patient. Verse 11, he sent another servant. But that one they also beat and treated shamefully, sent him away empty-handed. The landowner is patient. Verse 12, he sent a third servant, and they wounded him and threw him out. And so at this point, the people are to start to get it. He's telling this story against those religious leaders. In the context of Jesus' authority being questioned, the crowd and the religious leaders are starting to get what Jesus is saying about in this parable it's kind of a riddle. It's kind of cryptic. And we see that the owner of the, is clearly God, and the vineyard is Israel, the people of God, and the servants are the prophets of God throughout the Old Testament history, and the tenants are the tenant farmers are the religious leaders. And those tenant farmers, those religious leaders are dishonoring God. They're rejecting the prophets. They're not allowing Israel to truly know and experience the Heavenly Father. Verse 13, Jesus continues the parable and he says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, Well, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. And when we hear those words, we know that Jesus is talking about himself. We remember back to Jesus' baptism. We remember back to the transfiguration. Those very same words were spoken that said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, when they saw the son, they talked the matter over to each other. They said, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And we hear that, and we're kind of like, that sounds like crazy logic. That wouldn't work today. But actually, back in Jesus' day, if a property went unclaimed and the landowner didn't come to claim it, it could happen. They could take over the property. But more importantly, when Jesus is telling this parable, he is not only predicting his own death, he's saying to the religious leaders, I know what you're up to. I know your plans that you have for me. Plans for the cross. Verse 15, Jesus continues telling the parable. Says they, so they threw him out of the vineyard. They threw the son out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Now, the farmers had gotten so used to the landowner being far away, they didn't even think he would actually come back. But Jesus continues in verse 16 and says, He will come and he will kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, God forbid. They are shocked that these farmers, these tenants who were given this vineyard, would kill the son of the landowner. How could this happen, they're saying? And Jesus points them back to the prophecy spoken long ago in Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus, verse 17, looked at them directly and, said, and asked, What is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Let's leave that verse up. The stone the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. What does that mean? What's Jesus talking about there? You see, the psalm was written in King David's time, and it's originally referring to King David. King David, who was originally rejected, he was rejected by his father Jesse. He was rejected by Samuel the prophet because he was, was not big and strong and mighty. He was just young little kid out tending to the sheep. And they're like, this guy can't be the king. But God looked deep into David's heart. He saw David's heart and said, this one, this one 
is rejected. You builders have rejected this one, but he will become the cornerstone. God saw his heart and made King David the greatest king in the Old Testament. And so Jesus, when he quotes these words, he's, he's applying them to himself, and he's aligning himself as, with King David. He's saying, I am the son of David. I'm the promised king. I am the Messiah that will come. And while he's predicting the nature of his rejection, predicting that he will be killed on the cross, he also is predicting and hinting at his resurrection. He's saying that he will become the cornerstone. We just sang about it a moment ago. Jesus is saying, I will remain. I will hold the building together of the church. The church will be founded upon me. I will be the cornerstone that is immovable. I will remain forever. Even death cannot tear me down. And death cannot tear down my church. And in these next words, he cryptically warns those corrupt leaders. Verse 18, he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus' words, they're they're powerful here. I mean, if you were there, I mean, it would be just amazing. He's telling this to the people and the leaders are listening. He's indicting those corrupt religious leaders and they are fuming at him. Verse 19, it says, the teachers of the law and the chief priests, they were looking for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. There it is. They were afraid of the people. I mean, you just got to love the drama of that parable and of that storytelling and the powerful conviction. I mean, I'm humbled by this conviction and courage and confidence of Jesus to stand up to these corrupt leaders in the middle of the temple courts in front of all the people and for all the people. He stood up for the truth. He stood up for God the Father. He stood up for the way of God and the way God had promised to bless all people. Those corrupt religious leaders, they they question his authority, and basically Jesus tells them in a powerful and poetic and prophetic way that they have no authority, and that his authority comes from God the Father, that he is the son of King David, that he is the heir, that he is the promised one to come, that he would deliver God's people. He would deliver God's people from tyranny, tyranny not of Roman oppression, but the brokenness and the oppression of sin and guilt and shame and death. And if you were there, I could just imagine going back into the temple courts that day, the people, the crowd, they are leaning in. They are listening to Jesus talk. This is the first time in such a long time that they have heard a voice of such power and authority. The first time in such a long time they've heard the voice of God speak directly to them. The presence of God among them, a leader who has their best interests in mind. A leader who wasn't corrupt by power, a leader who wasn't corrupt by money, a leader who wasn't corrupt by pride or hubris, a leader who wasn't being corrupt by insecurity and afraid of losing control, a leader who doesn't tax them to extort them. The crowd is experiencing someone just like them, a man of the people, yet at the same time completely different from them, divine, righteous, and holy, a man of God, God himself among them. And that, my friends, that's who Jesus is. 
And that Jesus invites us every week to come and hear his words and take them into our lives and seek to understand them. And I'm telling you, that's the best field trip that I've ever been on. And you don't have to go anywhere but right here. God's word is a field trip, and you don't even have to leave home. You just open the pages. And as I was thinking about uh, up at Riley's Farm this past week, I was so grateful that we have teachers. We have teachers at our school that follow the way of Jesus. They aren't like those corrupt teachers of the law back in Jesus' day. Our teachers, our administrators, our staff, they take these third graders and all of our kids in our school, they take them on field trips every day into the land of God's word. And it's an awesome world. It's a world of freedom and liberty and truth and forgiveness and identity and new life. It's an actual encounter with God, with Jesus. Jesus, a human just like us, one of us, yet also God, completely divine, freeing us from the tyranny and corruption of this world, from our own broken hearts, and from death itself. He's coming to give us that life. And we're on that journey to that cross together now. I invite you to come back next week, Palm Sunday, to hear more about it, and Holy Thursday and Good Friday, and then two weeks from now, Easter, where we celebrate the complete fullness of why Jesus has come, to bring us eternal freedom and liberty from the tyranny of brokenness and death and sin in the world.